Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen Terracani for UCI Law Talks, and I'm always happy to see and talk with Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of UCI Law, but especially when he's going to discuss the Supreme Court. Oh, and also when he's passing out chocolate or donuts at the law school. Thank you, Erwin. It's a pleasure to talk with you and to do the podcast. You referred to the Supreme Court's last term for liberals as the return of the Jedi. How is this term shaping up? I think this term for conservatives is going to be the Empire Strikes Back. I think this term, there are a number of cases where the conservative justices are likely to be in the majority and move the law significantly in a conservative direction. Last time when we had you on UCLA Law Talks, you discussed three cases. Evanwell, the election law case, Friedrichs, the um, public school union dues case, and Fisher, of course, the affirmative action case. All of those three now, the Supreme Court has heard oral argument. And what did you take from the oral argument? And what can we read into what might happen? In one of those three cases, the oral argument was quite clear in terms of the direction of the court. Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association was argued on Monday, January 11th. What this involves is, in 1977, in Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that non-union, no one can be forced to join a public employees union, but that non-union members can be required to pay the share of the union dues that go to support collective bargaining. They benefit from the collective bargaining, their wages, their hours, their working conditions, and the court said they shouldn't be able to be free riders. But the court said no one can be forced to pay the share of the union dues that go to support the political activities of the union. In Friedrichs, the Supreme Court is being asked to overrule a bood and say that it violates the First Amendment to force non-union members to pay the share of the dues that go to support collective bargaining. The oral argument was striking in that not one of the five conservative justices left the slightest doubt as to how he's going to vote. All five of those justices, in every question asked, seem to indicate that they're ready to overrule a bood and to hold that non-union members don't have to pay anything towards collective bargaining. It will have a dramatic effect on unions in California and about 20 other states, lessening their revenues, likely decreasing their membership. The second case that I would talk about was Evanwell versus Abbott, and here it was very difficult to predict from the oral argument. You might recall that this case involves how is districting to be done when you've got, say, a city council or a state legislature or a congressional district. In the 1960s, the court articulated the rule, one person, one vote. For any elected body with districts, almost be about the same in population. In Evanwell versus Abbott coming out of Texas, the challenge they're saying districting should be on the basis of eligible voters, not on the basis of population. So if you think of an area with substantial non-citizen population, documented or undocumented, it would be significantly disadvantaged by that. Or an area where there's a larger birth rate, or an area where the significant number of people who are disenfranchised from voting because of a felony conviction. These tend to be predominantly minority communities. So the effect of this would be to shift voting strength from cities often to suburbs and rural areas, 
is very much benefit Republicans over Democrats. Some of the justices on the court, say notably Samuel Alito, seem sympathetic to the idea it should be eligible voters, not population. Other justices, like Sonia Sotomayor, seem very hostile to that, but hard to know where the court is going to come out on the basis of the oral argument. The final case that you mentioned in terms of argument is Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin. It was argued on Wednesday, December the 9th. This involves the University of Texas Affirmative Action Program. This is the second time the case is in the Supreme Court. In 2013, the court said that Texas had to prove there was no race-neutral way of achieving diversity. The Fifth Circuit on remand found that the University of Texas had demonstrated there was no other way to achieve diversity, and the Supreme Court granted review. It's important to remember in this case that Justice Elena Kagan is recused. She had been the Solicitor General of the United States when the matter was handled in that office. So there's only eight justices participating. What makes this case different and harder to predict is we know there are four justices who want to overrule precedent and eliminate all affirmative action. Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alita. We know there's three justices participating, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, who want to continue precedent and allow affirmative action, comes down to what's Justice Kennedy going to do. And his questions and oral arguments could be read as supportive for each side, and so it's very difficult to read. Might he join the liberals and create a 4-4 split, in which case the lower court is upheld without opinion by an evenly divided court? Might he join the conservatives in saying Texas didn't do enough to prove that there's no other way to achieve diversity? Might he even join the conservatives in overruling Grutter? Can't tell from the oral argument, though it's also worth remembering, since Anthony Kennedy came on the court in 1987, he's never once voted to uphold an affirmative action program. Not in education, not contracting, not employment. I think it means that Justice Kennedy is much more likely to side with the conservatives than the liberals. Will he go as far as the conservatives want in overturning precedent? That's what we can't know at this point in time. But certainly those who support affirmative action have every reason to be concerned about what the Supreme Court is likely to do. So notice in common on all three of these cases, there's the potential for a quite dramatic conservative change in the law. I think it's likely with regard to Friedrichs and possible with regard to Evanwell versus Abbott and Fisher versus University of Texas, Austin. Thank you, Erwin. Now, you mentioned, too, that, um, or we were talking before, that the Supreme Court has recently granted cert to three, well, a few more cases, but three very notable cases that we want to talk about here. Uh, one on immigration, another on abortion, and another on contraception. Can you tell us what those cases deal with? Sure. It is important to note that now the docket for October term 2015 is set. The Supreme Court has granted review in all of the cases that they're going to hear and decide this year. Anything else where review is granted between now and the end of June won't be heard until next term. And it's clear that, like last term, this is going to be another momentous blockbuster year. If you think about the three cases we just talked about and the three you mentioned, it's going to be another amazing late June as we see these rulings come down. I'll take them in the order you mentioned them. The first case that you talked about is United States versus Texas. The Supreme Court granted review on Tuesday, January 19th. 
In November 2014, President Obama announced an executive action where he said that the United States government is not going to bring deportation proceedings against parents who have children who are citizens or children who are permanent residents if the parents have been here since 2010 and they don't have a criminal record. This is technically called DAPA, Deferred Action for Parents. Immediately, Texas and 25 other states brought a challenge against the Obama executive action. Texas argued that President Obama had no authority to do this. He was usurping congressional power. He wasn't fulfilling his duty to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. The Obama administration said, no president deports all who are here illegally. About 11 million people in the United States were undocumented. On any given year, only about 400,000 are deported. The Obama administration said, we're just setting priorities. We want to deport those who are dangerous rather than break up families. No government, not federal, state, or local, enforces every law. Possessing a small amount of marijuana violates the Federal Controlled Substance Act, but the federal government doesn't prosecute. We wouldn't want the police to give a ticket to anybody who's one mile over the speed limit. The Obama administration says, we're just exercising prosecutorial discretion. The federal district court in Texas ruled against the Obama administration and issued a preliminary injunction. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in a two-to-one decision affirmed ruling against the Obama administration. The Supreme Court granted expedited review to hear the case this term. There are many complicated issues. One is, does Texas and the other states have standing to sue in federal court? In order to have standing for the federal court of jurisdiction, there has to be an injury. The Obama administration says, Texas isn't injured by this in any way. Texas says, well, we have to process the request for driver's licenses. That costs us money. That's an injury. The district court, the Fifth Circuit agreed. But is that enough of an injury for standing? Also, the Obama administration didn't go through a formal process for rulemaking. The district court said, in order to have a rule like this, you have to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. The Obama administration says, we're not issuing a formal rule. We're just telling you what our policy is going to be with regard to who we're going to deport and not. And there's then the constitutional issue that the Supreme Court granted review on. Does the president's policy violate his duty take care that the laws of the United States are faithfully executed. Where do the circuits come down on this split? Only one circuit is ruled, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and it was a two-to-one decision, and it was split along ideological lines. The two judges in the majority were both appointed by Republican presidents and are known as conservatives. The one in dissent was appointed by President Obama and is known as more liberal. What do you think is going to happen in that case? I don't have a prediction. Of course, the briefs haven't been filed. There hasn't been oral argument. That won't occur until the end of April. Um, and there's no prior case like this one. It's always you make predictions, easiest to do it when you can look to recent precedent and extrapolate from it. Now, the most recent immigration case before the Supreme Court was Arizona versus United States in 2012. And involved Arizona's controversial immigration law, SB 1070. 
And the Supreme Court 5-3 to three ruled in favor of the federal government against Arizona, striking down many of those provisions as being precluded, preempted by federal law. It was interesting, Justice Kennedy wrote for the court, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Justice Kagan was recused. The Obama administration wants to see this as a predictor of the court wanting to side with the government in immigration. On the other hand, everything about immigration is so politically charged, so divided along partisan lines, as we saw in the lower federal courts in this case. We've got to remember that there's five just on the Supreme Court who were appointed by Republican presidents, four by Democratic presidents. Will that matter in this context in the Supreme Court? The next case is the abortion case that the Supreme Court just agreed to uh, hear. Can you tell us about that one? The case is called Whole Women's Health Center versus Cole. It involves a Texas law. The Texas statute has two provisions. One says, as for any facility where abortions are performed, the doctors must have admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles. And it turns out, the hospitals don't give admitting privileges to these doctors. The other provision says that any facilities where abortions are performed must have surgical quality facilities. This is so even if no surgical abortions are performed there, even if all the abortions are medically induced, say through RU486, still they have to have surgical level facilities. The effect of this would have closed down about 40 of 50 facilities in Texas where abortions are performed. If this is constitutional, in some states like Mississippi, it will close all of the facilities where abortions are performed. The constitutional issue is the Texas law an impermissible undue burden on the right to abortion. The Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 said, that the government can regulate abortions before viability, but can't prohibit them. The regulations cannot place an undue burden on the right to abortion. This is going to be the most important case since defining what's an undue burden. Now, the challengers say it's an undue burden because it's going to close 80% of the facilities in Texas. The challengers say there's no evidence that these regulations will protect the health of women. The Fifth Circuit said that it's not relevant whether or not the regulations would protect the health of women in assessing whether it's an undue burden on the right to abortion. So it's enormously important with regard to Texas, with regard to so many laws like this. And for that matter, there were more statutes adopted by the states between 2010 and 2013 regulating abortion than in the prior decade combined. This is going to give an indication how the Supreme Court's likely to deal with these statutes. And this is, this is really the first major abortion case in a, in a while that we've seen. How does this court's makeup change their perspective? The last abortion case was Gonzalez versus Carhartt in 2007. There, the Supreme Court, five to four, upheld the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. It's a federal statute that prohibited a procedure that anti-abortion groups call partial birth abortion, where it's removal of a living fetus or significant part of a living fetus with the intent of ending the fetus's life. The Supreme Court overruled, or implicitly overruled, a seven-year-old precedent that had said that such laws are an unconstitutional undue burden. 
So to answer your question based on that case and based on what we have the court, I think there are four justices on the current court, Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, who will vote to overrule Roe versus Wade, and they will vote to uphold any regulation of abortion. I think that Justice Kennedy has made clear he won't vote to overrule Roe. He was the fifth vote in Planned Parenthood versus Casey to affirm Roe versus Wade, but he's very likely to uphold regulations up to the point of a prohibition of abortion. He wrote the opinion in Gonzalez versus Carhart. I think there are clearly four justices, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonner, and Kagan, to strike down these regulations, though this will be the first abortion case to be heard since Justices Sotomayor and Kagan came on the Supreme Court. So once more, like so much of what we're talking about, comes down to Anthony Kennedy. It really could be termed the Kennedy Court. It is the Kennedy Court. For all of the cases we're talking about, Anthony Kennedy is the swing vote. But that's nothing new. This has been so ever since 2006, when Senator O'Connor left the court and was replaced by Samuel Alito. You have Robert Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, who are quite conservative. You have Ginsburg, Breyer, Senator and Kagan, who are the liberals on the court. And when they split four to four, it's Kennedy who makes the difference. Prior to last year, in the first nine years of the Roberts Court, when those justices split four to four, Kennedy's with the conservatives 70% of the time and with the liberals 30% of the time. Last term was different. Last year, there were 14 ideologically divided 5-4 cases. Kennedy was with the liberals in nine and with the conservatives in five. But the issues that we're talking about, First Amendment rights of non-union members, voting districting, affirmative action, abortion, these are areas where Kennedy has historically been with conservatives much more than with liberals. Well, we'll have to see what happens with that. And the last case that we want to talk about is the uh, contraception case that has just been granted cert. The case is called Zubik versus Burwell. There's actually seven cases where cert was granted. They've all been consolidated, and this is going to be the title case. This goes back to the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, what we often call Obamacare. One provision of it said that the Department of Health and Human Services should promulgate regulations to make sure that employer-provided insurance included preventative health care coverage for women. We all know that traditionally insurance provided benefits only when someone was ill. Congress wanted to make sure that insurance provided by employers also had well care coverage. One, Health and Human Services promulgated the regulations. One part of them said that for religious institutions that oppose contraception, like the Catholic Church, they don't have to provide such benefits to their employees. Another part of the regulation said for profit companies that employ more than 50 people, they have to, if they provide insurance, include contraceptive coverage for women. In 2014, in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, the Supreme Court said it violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to require that close corporations, family-held businesses, provide contraceptive coverage to women if it violates the owner's religious beliefs. Zubik versus Burwell and the other six cases involve the final part of the contraceptive mandate. It says if a nonprofit is affiliated with a religion that opposes contraception, like a Catholic university, 
it can get out of this requirement by filing a statement with the federal government. It just has to attest that it's affiliated with a religion that opposes contraception, and then contraception will be provided to the woman at no cost to that nonprofit employer. The insurance provider and the federal government will pay for it and provide it. But nonprofits that are affiliated with religion have come forward and said, but that makes us complicit. We file a statement with the federal government and then others are providing contraception for the woman, contraception that violates our religious beliefs. We're the cause of this in the chain, and therefore, this is a substantial burdening of our religion. Seven different United States Courts of Appeals rejected that argument, saying that's just not a substantial burden on religion, so it doesn't violate the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit then came to the opposite conclusion, and found that it did violate the statute. The Supreme Court granted review in the first seven cases. The last wasn't ready for review at the time that the Supreme Court took action. The court consolidated them, and that's the issue. Does it violate the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to say that a not-for-profit can get out of providing contraception by signing the statement and filing with the federal government, when that means that others will then be providing the contraception? What is enough? for substantial burdening of religion. So can we read anything vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hobby Lobby and how the Supreme Court is probably going to rule in this one? Well, Hobby Lobby was a very sharply divided 5-4 decision. Justice Alito wrote, joined by Robert Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. Ginsburg wrote the dissent, and it was a vehement dissent, joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. That might indicate that those same five justices in the majority will be sympathetic to the nonprofits that are affiliated with religion and find that it violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. On the other hand, it's a different issue because in Hobby Lobby, the for-profit company would have to be providing the contraceptive coverage itself. Here, all the nonprofit does is file a statement saying, that it's affiliated with a religion that opposes contraception. So Hobby Lobby is what we have to try to draw inferences from, to make predictions from, but of course the Obama administration can say it's a totally different issue. Is this a substantial burdening of religion? What do you think? Again, we haven't had a oral argument in the case. It's always difficult to make predictions. Um, I think it's important that seven federal courts of appeals considered it and said, just filing a statement isn't enough to be a substantial burdening of religion when there's no cost whatsoever to the nonprofit affiliates with religion. On the other hand, many of the critics of Hobby Lobby said, notice that the five justices in the majority were five Catholic men, and their views about contraception and reproductive autonomy were surely reflected in their decision. Well, if one wants to draw inferences from something like that, it would point in the other direction. So in other words, until we've read the briefs and until we've heard oral argument, I'm going to be more cautious about making predictions. When is the oral argument scheduled in that case? It's in March. And the other two cases? United States versus Texas, no oral argument date has yet been set, but it will surely be at the very end of the argument calendar in late April. Um, Holman's Health versus Cole will also be argued in March. Anything else that we should discuss about this term or the cases upcoming? 
Well, there's so many important cases on the docket this term. There's important cases with regard to criminal law and criminal procedure. There's important cases with regard to intellectual property. There's other important cases with regard to freedom of speech. I think what I would end by saying is how remarkable this time is in the United States Supreme Court. I've been a law professor for 36 years now teaching constitutional law, so I followed the court closely for a pretty long time. I can't think of any time in recent memory where year after year there are so many blockbuster decisions from the Supreme Court. I mean, just think of the last few years. Um, in 2012, you had the case that upheld the Affordable Care Act, National Federation of Business for Sebelius, and the case that struck down large parts of Arizona's SB 1070, Arizona versus United States. In 2013, you had the Supreme Court in United States versus Windsor striking down a key provision of the Federal Defense Marriage Act. You also had the Supreme Court striking down a crucial provision of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder. First time a civil rights law dealing with race has been invalidated since the end of Reconstruction, really. Um, then you've got in 2014, other major blockbuster cases coming down at the end of the term. 2015, you've got marriage equality coming down, upholding the Affordable Care Act. Um, and then you look at the cases that are in the docket this term. Hard to remember any time in recent memory where the Supreme Court has had so many blockbuster cases in such a short period of time. And maybe that leads to the most crucial message of all. I think that the most important issue in the November 2016 presidential election is who's likely to fill four seats on the Supreme Court. The average retirement age of a Supreme Court justice since 1960 has been 79 years old. In 2017, the year the next president inaugurated, we'll have four justices who are 79 years old or older, Ginsburg, Scalia, Kennedy, and Breyer. Especially if it's a two-term president, that individual is gonna fill four seats. The most long-lasting legacy of any president is appointments to the Supreme Court and the federal courts. So I think for both Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, all of this that we're talking about shows there's nothing more important in the coming presidential election than who's going to fill those vacancies on the Supreme Court. Indeed. And I'm very much looking forward to our Supreme Court term and review event in July. That There's going to be a lot to talk about. Most definitely. Thank you so much, Erwin. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.